Welcome to Future Forecast, the podcast where we discuss leadership, technology, and sustainability with some of the most influential leaders and entrepreneurs from around the world. We explore their insights into some of the most exciting trends and topics of our time, and we learn from their personal experiences. I'm your host, Isabel Ringness, and today we'll be talking about the future of food and how technology will radically change the way we produce it. We're talking to Lauri Reuter on Skype from Finland, one of my colleagues from Singularity University Nordic. Lauri has a PhD in biotechnology and is a specialist in cell biology, genetic engineering, and protein production, and is passionate about securing food production in the future. He's conducted research on the use of plant cells as biological factories for valuable biomolecules and eventually as a completely new source of nutrition. He's a senior specialist of disruptive technologies at VTT Technical Research Center of Finland. He speaks on prominent stages around the world, and he has a TED Talk about the future of food. Welcome, Lauri. Thank you so much for joining the Future Forecast. Hi, nice to be here. So we like to kick off the podcast with a few questions for the listeners to get to know you better. And uh, I would like to challenge you on telling us what your morning routine is. Oh, uh, <laughs> um I wake up normally a bit too late and I have to I have to admit I'm a bit of a bit of an addict I I tend to open my phone the first thing in the morning and check how did I sleep <laughs> I have I have these things that measure my sleep and I'm kind of a kind of a sucker for data. So oh that's awesome. I That's the thing that I check first thing in the morning. And uh, is that a sleep cycle that you use? Um no I have this aura ring that measures uh stuff from my from my finger. Wow. Yeah. That's fascinating. Does it tell you about your sleep quality every morning? It does. It does, yeah. And what's your what's your average? <laughs> average is uh lately it's been quite good. In in the past few past few uh weeks I've uh I've been improved my routines a bit. So it's getting good. Well, that that's actually good because it leads me uh into my next uh question. When was the last time you stepped out of your comfort zone? Wow, that's I have to say that was actually um That was actually last night. I uh, I applied. Well, I volunteered for a uh, for a research that I cannot go too much into details of what kind of research it is. Let's put it this way: that it's it's um, I'm volunteering to be a kind of a test person in a research that will take me far away from my own comfort zones. <laughs> oh my god! This is this is the kind of things that you know I I really love to do when there is when you can volunteer. Uh, I kind of help someone else to do awesome research and uh, it's kind of a great experience for yourself, but also helping out others doing amazing things. Oh my God, but you really gauged my interest here. Are you sure you can't tell us what it is? It has something to do with brain imaging and orgasms. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay, uh, so I can only imagine what this research is uh, is gauging you to do, but... Uh, But uh, okay, I guess uh... it's really interesting. I mean, it's one of the things that we should be studying. I mean, how do we how do we get pleasure and enjoyment of the things that we do in life? But it's also a bit on the on the edge of edge of being comfortable in being part of that research. So I guess I mean, what what's the end goal of it? Is it to see how our brains react to orgasms or how? Yeah, I mean, what actually happens in your in your, in your head? We don't we don't really know. That's really interesting. Wow, and and how is that going to be applied to other areas, or is, or is it? Well, generally, I think it will be interesting to see. I mean, um, once we get more and more understanding of of how our brains work and how we perceive the world around us, 
Wow. Uh, that would be a great follow-up podcast. I don't know how long this study is going to run, but but hopefully our podcast will still be around by then. But I want to jump right into your um, passion because uh, I want people to know where your passion for food comes from. Because I remember when we were at the Singularity University faculty boot camp last March or April. I mean, you remember? I remember you captured us, all of us, the audience, by talking about your unique and intimate relationship to food, which we basically all have. But maybe you can tell us when you got interested in food and how that interest has brought you to where you are today. Um, so, like you say, we all have a very, very, very intimate relationship with food. Um, but mine was um, strange in a way that I grew up on this. Um, home where we had a uh, big garden in the backyard. It wasn't wasn't a commercial, you know, farming, but it was was these old old uh, large greenhouses that used to be in your know, commercial uh, production before that. But at that point, when we were living there, they were just you know up there standing. So we used them to grow uh, all kinds of fun things for our own family. So when I was a kid, that was that was pretty much my playground. And, and we're, you know, trying out all kinds of things, you know, growing all kinds of exotic stuff in the greenhouse just because we could. Mm. And, and I was, I remember being really, really curious about, about why do all these different plants taste so different? So what does one herb taste like mint and another green plant taste like basil? And why does a strawberry taste different than an apple? And that was, that was a very... Well, it's a fascinating world, the world of flavors and, and taste. And my, my mom was a um, chemistry teacher. So obviously I was asking a lot of really, really annoying questions from her. <laughs> and, at some, and at some point uh, she just you know, couldn't answer all the questions. And, then, and that was the point I decided to go to university and, uh, and start really digging deeper into that topic and, and studying bio, biochemistry and, and molecular biology. But I mean, from that to where you are today, and I'm going to ask you later about more specifically what you what you do at at your uh, current work. But I mean, the 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 curiosity that you had as a child, I mean, has brought you into some very very exciting fields. Was there anything that you learned at school that uh, drove you in a different direction, or or opened your eyes to maybe a completely new aspect of this field? Well, well the thing is that. When I was a kid and, and, and fascinated by flavors, my, my original plan was to become a chef. Uh, and I, I did these internships in restaurants and all the chefs I met were, were telling me that if there's anything else you can do in your life, you just you know, go and do something else. It's, it's, it's a tough work. I mean, and then uh, when I was in high school, we, uh, one thing that really struck me was this notion of, of biology as an engineering science. So genetic engineering of, of life and the fact that we can, we can use um, living organisms uh, as our tools of manufacturing. And that's what we're basically doing with, with, agri uh, with agriculture. But we could do that also in a more, uh, more sophisticated way when we, when we use cells as, as biological factories. And that, that was the kind of notion that this kind of um, dual relationship with biology. On the other hand, studying what life is and how it works. And on the other hand, studying how we could use that, how we could utilize that life and, and start engineering it. And that was then something that drove me forward for, for a long time. And actually, that's uh, a great bridge because I know that, and, and I li literally every single day in the media, we read about these 
fascinating technologies and trends driving the future of food. And I know that you have a good taste for most of them, pun intended. Uh, I wanted to go through a few of the ones that I've uh, actually heard you talk about and uh, maybe start with the one that's uh, on everyone's lips, namely artificially grown meat. Can you tell us what are these technologies or technology and how widespread it is and what kind of a potential it has? Because we've actually just recently in Norway got the uh, Beyond Burger, which uh, everyone's raging about. And uh, I, I have a feeling that this is going to really change the way we uh, eat meat uh, very soon. What, 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 are, what, can you tell us more about it? Absolutely. So there, there's two things that we need to separate here. One is the, uh, the uh, cell-based meat or cultured meat that is grown from animal cells. So that stuff is, it fundamentally is meat. So it is the animal muscle and fat cells. Now, the only difference is that they're not grown in the uh, shape of a cow. But we take the, um, the stem cells of the, of the muscle tissue. So we take a small sample from the cow muscle. And then those cells, they start to multiply on this artificial environment that we, we call bioreactors, basically in a vat or in a, in a container. So they start to multiply and grow more mass and so more muscle. And then that can be structured into something that resembles like minced meat. So that is what we uh, what we would call cultured meat or cell-based meat, and there is uh, several companies working on that. There's there's massive investments being poured into this technology, and, and it's not only beef, but there's also uh, chicken and duck and even fish cells being grown. Uh, and the product is is fundamentally it is the same meat, animal tissue. But then there's this other technology. These. But wait, can I just intervene before you yeah, go into sure. the uh, into the other one? So wh- why? Isn't this everywhere? I mean, is it expensive to produce? I mean, is it what what is it is it hard? I, I would think from a branding perspective that people would be iffy about eating meat. I mean, essentially grown in a petri dish. I mean, what what is what what are the? <laughs> Basically, the same meat. It's just grown. It's it's fundamentally the same, exactly the same meat, but it's just grown in a different way. It is obviously a new new way of of seeing the 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 production of meat, but I don't see the fundamental value of meat for, for me as a, as a consumer, the fundamental value of a meat is not that it had a face at some point. It's the, right. the fact that it is nutritious and it tastes great. So if we can provide that value with some other technology, then, then there is, there's a massive value proposition. And you can do that with massively uh, less use of land area or water that are very limited resources on this planet. So, so why aren't we doing this everywhere? I mean, is it is it a, a, a question of price or? So yeah, it's still it's still a question of price. The the price of producing this cultured meat or cell based meat has dropped significantly in the in the past years, but it's still it's still too expensive. We are looking uh, for the first products to enter the market sometime in the coming years. They will be most probably quite expensive in the beginning uh, because we don't still really have good scalable uh, ways of growing these animal cells. Uh, they, are, they are rather tricky to grow, uh, but we're getting there. We're getting there. It's still, it's still a cost thing at this point, and the technology is not quite ready yet. 
Okay. And uh, and then going into the other branch, because I do know that there's a different way that you can also produce something that's not maybe meat, but similar to it. So you mentioned Beyond Meat, and that, that's, uh, that's, that's then the, on the other branch. So these are products that resemble meat very, very closely, but they are not meat. So Beyond Burger is actually made from plants. They're just processed in a way that the product is very, very, very meat-like. And that's obviously a very different approach to replacing the, the animal production when you produce, for example, burgers. So what we can do nowadays is, is take, for example, um, pea proteins and beans and, and all kinds of legumes, and uh, you can uh, fractionate it. So you can, you can take different components apart and then combine them again in very precise way so you, so you can achieve different structures and, 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 and tastes and, and so forth. So with these technologies, we can now take plants, so ingredients, and process them into something that looks and tastes really, really closely like, like beef. And Beyond Meat is one, one great example of, of those products. And, and that is now entering the European market as actually, actually being sold already very broadly all over the world. And what I think is most interesting now when these technologies kind of come together and there's these hybrids where there is components from, from biotechnology and then there's these new processing technologies and, and all of a sudden eating a burger won't have, I mean, it doesn't need to have anything to do with animals anymore. So I think there are, I think actually what I think these plant-based alternatives like, like Beyond Meat, I think they are going to win, win the game because they are already on the market. They are already so good. They're almost indistinguishable from, from beef. And the, the cell-based, so the animal cell-based uh, products are still kind of in the, they're still not quite there. Interesting, because I mean, I, I fully agree. I've uh, We've actually shared a Beyond uh, Burger, or was it Impossible Burger, one of them. Are, I don't know if they are very different from each other, but I definitely found it, I mean, almost indistinguishable from meat, even though I'm a vegetarian myself, I couldn't really tell with 100% surety, but I... I feel like it's it's just as good as, but I'm 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 curious because I know that they're making beef patties from it. So like anything that would be like in a pasta sauce or like a hamburger or something like that would work. But are they able to make like an actual like steak out of it? Yeah, that's that's a good point. So <clears throat> so there's already absolutely amazing alternatives uh, for sausages or nuggets or you know patties, but then then the structure of meat, that's much, much harder to replicate. And that's something that these plant-based alternatives might not be able to do. Um, that's, but it could be something that these cell-based technologies might actually achieve, but that's still very far away from what, where we are right now. But technically, it will be possible at some point to grow an actual muscle on a Petri dish. But the thing is that a muscle needs to be trained, so it needs to have some sort of you know exercise to to <laughs> to grow these larger things, and need to have these these blood vessels, and it's it's a very very complicated structure. But if you think of the um, the need that we have in this world, we do not need to go all vegan. I mean, that's not necessary for the planet. We need to reduce the meat consumption a lot, but we don't need to go all vegan. And there is there is very good arguments for growing uh, cattle in some places of the planet where, for example, only grass grows really well and you cannot really farm anything else. And in that case, it makes sense. And I'd say that uh, the biggest problem right now in the modern society is, 
is all these products where we add meat, but are really not meat-like things. So all the nuggets, burgers, sausages, it's easy to replace the, the animal products in there. And, and then you can have your steak. You know, we don't eat steaks every day, and we definitely should not eat steaks every day. But if you, you can have your, you know, small steak like every week, if we replace meat everywhere where it's really easy to replace. That makes complete sense, actually. And uh, you kind of broke my brain saying that we have to train the muscles in the meat. Uh, I'm just kind of picturing these like patties and petri dishes training themselves. It's it's a it's a weird and fascinating field. But uh, you were you were talking about how you needed to to do a different kind of uh, I don't know technology or what you would call it in order to create the structure. And uh, you've spoken earlier about artificially creating various foods from plant cells, being able to replicate both the both the taste and then perhaps even the texture of, I remember you mentioned like a strawberry and tomato and, and some other different vegetables and fruits. Can you tell me uh, in the easiest possible way uh, how you do this uh, and why you would do it and what that essentially entails? So plant cells is what I've done, I've done most of my research with. And um, just like those animal cells that we can take out of the cow and grow in a, in a bioreactor, you can take plant cells out of the plant and grow them in, in an artificial environment or in a bioreactor. And that has actually been done already for decades uh, for production of some uh, pharmaceuticals, for example, or, or cosmetic compounds. And that's because these plant cells are in fact um, small living factories, if you will. So they can produce very, very complex uh, chemicals that we as, as humans have no, no means of, of making even synthetically in the lab. So we can take the plant cells and, and feed them, you know, sugar and, and some really basic minerals, and they can then uh, create these very complex molecules that we, for example, uh, perceive as flavors or scents or, or so forth. Um, now, if we take, for example, a uh, the Nordics, lingonberry is a good example. Uh, if you take a lingonberry uh, cell, make a cell culture of it, it produces the same, the similar components and, and uh, that the lingonberry plant would produce. So we have been growing, for example, lingonberries here, here at GTT, and, and then made jam out of the cell culture, and it actually tastes precisely like lingonberry jam. So, so we could grow lingonberries without actually growing them in the forests or in the fields. Uh, now, replacing lingonberries makes very little sense because we can pick them from the forest, at least here in the north. But there is a lot of um, plant-based ingredients and foods that are somewhat problematic. Say, avocados are very, very water-intensive to farm, just like uh, almonds are. And coffee is, is getting harder and harder to grow because of the changing climate, and so is, so is cocoa. So if we could produce uh, those in another way, so grow them in, in what would look like a brewery, that might um, provide another, another source for those interesting uh, molecules that we otherwise would be looking from those plants. But, I mean, is this very expensive to do? Or Because you don't really hear about this that much. I mean, it's not talked about to the same extent as, for example, the artificially grown meat. I mean, what, what's the uh, challenges with, uh, with doing this? So the thing is that um, just like this cell-based meat is coming, it's coming from the uh, research of, 
of growing human cells for medical purposes. So like growing organs or? Yeah, precisely. So from, from that sort of research. And the same way growing plant cells comes from, from research for pharmaceutical protein, uh, pharmaceutical compounds and, and cosmetics. So something that has, has uh, ridiculously high value per kilo. Uh, but now those technologies are developing to an extent where production is getting cheaper and cheaper. So we would be able to produce even food with the same technologies. Growing plant cells um, for food purposes is still quite expensive, for sure. So that, that is obviously one, one reason why it has not been utilized until now. But the prices are coming down. And also now the, the environment um, to grow some of these food plants is getting you know, more and more difficult. So the need might be there. While we are talking so much more about cultured meat, is that meat is so much, I'd say, so much more obvious problem. And the need to replace meat is, is so obvious. So the value proposition in cultured meat is, is massive. So obviously that is something that would create uh, an incredible change in the food system if we could make that. I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated by this. And I, and I also feel like it's almost worth asking the question, well, what if we start producing all of these things in laboratories? I mean, won't that have a tremendous impact on all the jobs that go into agriculture today? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I... Um, we, first of all, we would not produce them in the labs. <laughs> we, we would uh, study the technologies in the lab and then where the production would take place would be something like, like breweries nowadays or, or bakeries. I mean, they are basically food factories, you could say. So that's the kind of environment where the production would happen. It's not that different to what we're doing actually now. If you think of corn, for example, has been on the market in UK for, for a couple of decades already, that is grown in a tank so in a very similar way so in that sense it wouldn't be so strange now with all the previous big transitions in food system like when we moved from hunting and gathering into agriculture and then from agriculture to this very industrial agriculture now those older system older systems they they didn't go anywhere we're still hunting and gathering on top of growing food on fields so what will happen most probably is that the additional amount of food that we will need to produce in the future on top of what we're producing now, that hopefully will happen in these new, with these new kinds of technologies and, and in new environments. But the agricultural system won't go anywhere. I mean, that will still exist for a very long time, um, although changing climate is making that very hard in some parts of the planet. But globally, I, I'm, not, I'm not seeing the, uh, the future where agriculture would just be replaced with something else. Interesting. So I guess it's not, we don't need to worry about losing all jobs yet. They'll just kind of no. evolve. <laughs> yes, but it, it will evolve, like you said. There will, be, there will be new kinds of jobs. There will be new kind of food production on top of the existing one. Yeah. So I want to shift gears a bit um, because personalization of health and diet is an increasing trend. I mean, you were just speaking about how you're uh, looking into your different sleeping patterns and I'm sure trying to optimize for the best possible sleep. But uh, in, in at least diet, it's being fueled uh, also through the growth of these genome sequencing companies such as MyHeritage or 23andMe. Uh, and then I know that there's a restaurant in London that you actually uh, told me about called Vita Mojo, uh, which experiments with tailoring diet and meals to your DNA. Could you enlighten us on how that works and what the point of it is and what potential or benefit it would uh, bring us? Yeah. So so the thing is that obviously we're facing massive challenges in how we, how we produce our food for, for the future. 
But then another massive challenge is that that we who live in in the very prosperous you know Nordic countries, we have all the food that we can imagine of you know available to us any given moment. And what's happening here is that we are we are really putting our health in danger in the way we eat. Every second person in Finland is already overweight, and and in Europe and in US. Almost half of the premature deaths can be contributed to diet somehow, and that is just really not sustainable. So what's going wrong here is that we don't really eat in the way that we should eat, and it's really hard to tell people how they should eat because that's very, very personal to to every single person, for for various reasons. Obviously, you mentioned the genomics. You know, my own genome has a lot to in the influence a lot how how I should eat. But there's a lot of other factors as well. So if we could get to the end point where we could measure all these things and then get the data, and that data would somehow either help me to make the right decisions on my food or just make those decisions for me, that would, that would make a massive change in, in the consumption of food, which would obviously reflect to reduce food waste, hopefully, and also... Uh, in that way, help the environment a lot because we would eat better for the environment. But that would have foremost a massive effect to our health if we would eat the way we actually should eat. Have you tried it yourself? Um, no, the, these technologies are not really ripe yet. So um, there is these few companies that are offering services like like Vito Mojo uh, did that uh, tried in the UK, and there is this habit testing a similar ish. Um, service in the US, there's a German company called Million Friends. And what they do is they uh, do your um, microbiome, so your gut microbes. They, they check what you have in there, and then they provide you with this uh, glucose sensor that you can put in your, in your, in your arm uh, so that they can, they can figure out what kind of diet would suit well your, your gut microbes and give you advice based on that. All these are still very much in the in a phase where they don't really give that full picture. And, and they give me instructions. But to be quite honest, I have, I have so many instructions how I should eat. <laughs> I need a system that can make those decisions for me in a very easy way. And all this is just those, those pieces are coming together. And I, I, I am expecting to see, see this kind of development happening in the next, let's say, three, four, five years where we would actually get a genuine service, well, food as a service or diet as a service. But it does require that we will gather more information, more data on, on how my body reacts to food and also my eating habits. But, but that's happening. That's happening. So whereas, whereas we're talking now more and more about personalized medicine, where we, um, where we personalize the medical care really carefully to every individual patient, we're getting to the same thing now with, uh, with food so that we can personalize your diet to fit your specific needs at any given moment. I mean, I, I, I've done it myself, actually. Uh, I did the, I, I took the 23andMe and then I uh, extrapolated the data from there and put it into um, the DNA Fit, which is like a British service. I'm sure you've done the same. Um, but then you get, you know, just like you said, so many different instructions on how you're supposed to <laughs> optimize your health and both the way you exercise and also the way you diet. But it just, it just seems like it has to become a lot more easier and uh, intuitive because, like, we would, 
I mean, I, I would go crazy having to like listen to all these different signals and data points constantly trying to optimize. You just want to, you just want to live, right? The thing is that when we, when we live our normal lives, we are, we, on average, we humans, we make 220 decisions on food every single day. Wait, how many? 220. That's rough average. And, and most of those decisions we make completely unaware of making them, uh, <laughs> which, is, which is weird. And then if you go to any given supermarket, you have from something, you know, 20 to 30,000 different objects there that you can buy. So how on earth could we make those decisions? It, will, it takes immense uh, dedication to figure out what you actually should eat. So as long as we have the human in the loop making those decisions, we will eat, I'd say, very intuitively. And in this environment where everything is available to us, that might not be the healthiest way of eating. So we will need some sort of help to it. And, and it will be good enough only uh, when it will become very uh, automated. So when, when that data will make decisions for me. So the decisions, what I'm going to eat next, will be made somewhere in the background and then suggested to me. And, and now I'm not saying that we have to give all our you know, freedom of decision away. Uh, but at least, you know, during the very hectic and busy weekdays when I, when I go to work, I don't, need, I don't really need to, I don't really want to think about what to have for lunch. I want somebody else to make a really sophisticated decision for me what to have for lunch. And the same goes, you know, in the afternoon when I go, when I go back home from work. Uh, it's, 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 a di- it's a really, really tiring thing to go to the supermarket and try to decide what's good to me and what's good for the planet. So many of these decisions we could kind of outsource but then, then I want to give my freedom to go, go to the farmer's market in the weekend and just touch and smell and taste things and, and, and make my own food. So these, these are not excluding each other, obviously. And we'll start consuming in this very, very hybrid mode, I think, in the future. Oh, I could talk about this forever. It's so interesting. Uh, but I need to go into the next segment because it is the point in your talk where you literally blow everyone's mind no matter how educated they are on food because you talk about the concept of creating food out of thin air i believe you experimented and i mean correct me if i'm wrong because i probably am uh, with using yeast bacteria in a bioreactor to essentially create real food out of thin air and you have to tell me what is this? Uh, what on earth does this mean? And I mean, is this technology essentially in the future going to allow us to just produce food out of thin air? What does it take to even get there? Well, it's not as crazy as it sounds like, to be honest. How? <laughs> if you think of any, let's just think of a bean, you know, just, just a normal plant. What they do is that they absorb carbon dioxide from the air. That's, that's their source of carbon. And they, they take up water, they take up nitrogen, and they use solar energy. So basically photons uh, as an energy source. And they bind all those very small molecules together into these larger molecules like glucose or, or proteins or fats. So um, that's the way plants do it. But then there's other organisms. There's, for example, uh, microbes living in the soil. And they, they never see sunlight. But they have all kinds of molecules around them in the soil. So some of them can take up carbon dioxide as a gas, and they can use these, uh, let's say, chemical energy around them, basically hydrogen. And they can, they can pretty much the same thing. So they can convert this carbon dioxide 
into these larger molecules like proteins, fats, and, 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 and carbohydrates with the chemical energy. So what uh, NASA has been doing research and already in the 60s would be an idea of using these soil microbes and putting them in a tank then feeding them with carbon dioxide and electricity. So this electricity would, would split, uh, if you put electrodes in the tank, it splits water into uh, oxygen and hydrogen. And these microbes can use the hydrogen as an energy source. And then they can uh, bind those carbon atoms into these larger molecules and basically eat it, basically use that as a carbon source. So the technology they studied at that point for you know feeding the um, future... Uh, colonies in space, which, you know, that was the space time, the space era, but it wasn't really feasible in, in any reasonable way. But now the technology has developed a lot and the need uh, for sustainable protein sources is, is definitely urgent. So we did this research here at VTT and, and developed that system further and actually spun out a company a, a year ago. It's called Solar Foods. So what they are doing now, they're doing exactly that. So they have these soil microbes in a tank they feed them with uh, carbon dioxide and put these electrodes in there. So they have a solar panel outside and they use that solar power to feed the microbes with uh, basically hydrogen ions. And these microbes grow and grow and grow in the tank. And then we can take them out and use them as food. So literally making uh, food from thin air, but technically it is the same thing what plants do. It's, it's photosynthesis without using plants. Wait, so have you tried it? I mean, have you actually taken something out of this reactor and, and like felt it and eaten it yourself? Yeah, it, it comes out as this uh, whitish powder. It's like milk powder. It looks like milk powder or wheat flour. And <laughs> it tastes pretty much the same too. So these, these guys running solar food, it's still a very small company and they're doing it in a very small scale. But they should be getting some, um, some proteins out uh, to be tested with the with the consumers um, still this year, wow. and also also getting an approval from the European Union to uh, to uh, commercialize this as food uh, still very very soon. So that will be interesting. And obviously, this kind of process it's basically just building a very big tank to start growing protein. And how how long does the process take to get like a kilo of this milk powder? Um, so it depends all on the scale and how big of a tank you have. Well, I believe the guys are now running a process where they can produce a kilo of protein a day. And this, this is still, you know, you know, garage scale, so not too big. But the, the, uh, the end uh, idea is to produce really tons of protein every day. And, and the beautiful point here is that you don't need the fertile soil. So you do not need a field to do this. And that's the critical thing here. Because we can grow, for example, soy on fields. And that is basically doing the same thing, taking solar energy and carbon from the air and turning it into protein. But for that, you need fields. And to be quite honest, we're running out of fields. The field area on the planet is actually shrinking all the time. And we should produce more and more food. At the same time, the fields are on the most fertile um, parts of the planet where that space is actually taken away from the biodiversity. For example, Amazonas. But when you produce food in, in this, with this new technology, you can place that literally anywhere, like anywhere. And to me, quite interesting is that, uh, that they're right now building a big solar power plant in, in the Atacama Desert. That's the driest place on the planet. 
and we, we ran some math and it doesn't take too much development and the price of solar power to drop so that the growing fermenting foods are growing these microbes would be actually cheaper to do than growing soy and Amazonas. So that, that would be a major disruptive moment for this whole uh, food system. Was it going to use the driest, most horrible places on this planet to actually grow food instead of the most biodiverse and greenest places of the planet? I mean, I think I'm curious to, to, to know whether or not, and I mean, this is kind of going into the next question too, because these, you hear about these, these things and, and I'm like, oh my God, so we can basically create, you know, as much food as we want out of these tanks and uh, maybe that will make us, uh, you know, be able to produce enough food for generations to come. Uh, but then again, uh, you know, a lot of people, they shy away from changing uh, their current eating habits or their current uh, way of producing foods because they revert to the argument that, well, I mean, technology is going to save us before we need to change our actual production or consumption. So I, I guess, to what extent do you think that technology is going to save us from the challenges that we face? Uh, and what extent do you think that we actually have to undergo changes ourselves? So um, that's a very good point. To begin with, uh, the only thing that really matters is, is changes in how we behave, in how we actually act. And technology is just an enabler for that. So technology on its own does not change a thing. Technology alone does not change anything if we're not applying it, if we're not using it, if we're not using it in a wise way. And technology doesn't develop itself. So we cannot just lay back and, and wait you know, for the technology to develop and save everything. That's not going to happen. We need to have a vision of, of the kind of future we want to create and then work really hard to build the technologies that will enable it. And once we have the technologies, then we need to use them to change things, to change the way we you know, behave on this plan, the way we, we use resources. And then, then there is a thing that, that there is a lot that we can do right now, right today, to make things much better without actually needing any technology for that. I mean, the simplest thing that we should do right now to change things to better is to change our own personal diets into, you know, changing them into, into, into very much plant-based. So reducing the amount of we, uh, animal products that we consume, reducing especially the amount of, of beef and, and dairy products. I'm not saying that we have to give it up. I'm saying that we need to reduce, so eat less of it. And that will do a big change. That will buy us some time, at least, uh, to change things and, uh, with technology. Obviously, some technologies can help that change to happen. For example, now you need to really decide to change your habits. And habits can be really, really ingrained. Hmm. But if you have a service that helps you to make those decisions during the day, that might make it actually much, much easier. You talk to people about these things every single day. And I mean, you must have a pretty good sense of what the public opinion is on a lot of these technologies. I mean, we've talked about artificial meats and plants and various kinds of foods, and they hold this tremendous potential. But then, as you mentioned, this, I suspect that the hardest thing is not going to be the technology in and of itself, maybe in the beginning at least, but our mindsets. And in many areas, the technology is available, but then maybe we aren't. But in the future, maybe we'll have to change our perception of what food is. I mean, you were talking about, well, there's a face on the cow versus, do I mean, do we is that what meat is? Or is meat just, you know, a, a animal cell? Uh, to accept and adopt the new ways of uh, consumption. I mean, how when you when you talk to people about this, 
what is your sense of how we should move forward in convincing people that we're moving in the right direction, but that we do have to make changes to the way we're currently living? Well, the one thing that is absolutely certain is that we need to change a lot of things, especially in the food system, a lot of things and very fast. And the problem is that we, that food is very, it's a very, very intimate thing for us. And it's, it's actually a tool for uh, building your identity. We identify ourselves through what we eat. So it's, it's really hard to change that. Really, really, really hard. And I think, I think some of the things that make it harder is that we use a lot of, uh, to, to my thinking, uh, strange vocabulary when it comes to food. We use words like natural or clean or real. And they, if you think of them, they don't really carry any meaning when it comes to food or, or the meanings are, are very different to, to how we use them. So what I would really you know, ask everyone to do is to, is to stop for a moment and think of the foods that we eat every day and where did they come from and how have they changed already in the past decades and then kind of accept that they will change also in the future and they can be even better. Because we, we tend to have this idea that everything that we have now is safe and natural and, and pure and everything that is coming in the future is, is somehow weird and artificial and strange. So that's one thing. But if you want to change the, the you know, human behavior in, in large scale, when it comes to food, there is two things that are fundamentally important. Well, I, I would say actually three. One of them is, is the ease of making the decisions. Food needs to be very easy. And the alternatives need to be very easy. And that's why instead of, you know, telling people not to eat burgers, it might be easier just to make exactly the same burger, but make it from plants. And, and that's, it's obviously, it's not, a, it's not a product for vegans. It's a product for people who are used to eating meat and for whom changing their dietary habits is really hard. So making it easy is super important. The second is, is making it taste good. Taste is... A fundamentally important thing when it comes to food. If it doesn't taste good, it's not going to work out. So whatever new products and new services that we'll come up with, uh, they need to taste amazing. And third is the social aspects of food. I mean, that cannot go away. We need to make sure we, we are humans and we need that social interaction around food and that culture around food. So we need to make sure that whatever new technologies we, we're trying to introduce or are trying to come up with, they need to... Um, they need to be built with uh, respect to the to the culture that we have around food and the social aspects of it. Ease, taste, and social aspect. I think that was uh, three very clever uh, tips for everyone listening who's producing food out there. Um, when uh, we, we are actually running out of time, so I'm just going to challenge you to come up with, from everything that we've talked about, what is the most important lesson or essence boiled down to, to one sentence that you want our listeners to remember when they go on with their daily lives? I think just rethinking. Rethink the food that you're eating. Does a meat have to necessarily have anything to do with animals? Could we just make the same thing in a very different way? So rethinking the everyday food that we eat. I think that's the ask I would have for everyone who's listening. That's a great ask. And finally, I have three final asks from you. Uh, we have three quick questions before I let you go. If you could give your 20-year-old self, uh, Laurie, two pieces of advice, what would they be? Oh, gosh. Uh, 
my 20 year old self was super 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 interested about science and figuring how figuring out how things work but for my 20 year old self i would have told you know to study more social science study also how <laughs> humans work that's what makes difference in the end not really science alone but it has to have some impact in the real world that is very true. I think uh, I think probably people studying too much uh, people as well could learn from studying a little bit more science. But uh, yeah, I mean, but, we need to talk, we need to talk more. I need to be cross disciplinary talk that we need to get more going on. Yeah, exactly. Um, what's your favorite podcast? Oh, there is there is so many so good podcasts. Um, but I have to I have to um, I have to say I have been actually making a podcast uh, series with uh, with the people here at VTT. Uh, during the past year, and that's my absolute favorite because I I got to uh, I got to do it. Hey, we went around and talked to uh, some of our best experts in science and technology and asked how they how they are seeing the world and how will it look like. And making that was such an incredible experience that I enjoyed that a lot. Oh my gosh! But what's it called? You have to tell us. It's called uh, VTT Growthcast. VTT Growthcast. Yeah, unfortunately, that's only in Finnish at the moment, but we are looking into doing some uh, English episodes too. Well, hopefully we'll have some Finnish listeners that can uh, that can go and uh, listen to that. And actually, uh, where should people go to follow you? Um, anyone who uh, doesn't speak Finnish as well. Twitter is good. Twitter. What, what's your name? At Lauri Reuter. Nice. You can find very easily. Or just follow hashtag future food. There is a lot of other good stuff as well hashtag future food okay got it uh thank you so much for joining us laudi uh every time i speak to you i'm mind mind blown and i am sure that uh, our audience has found you equally fascinating thank you for joining us thank you it was a pleasure thank you for listening to future forecast i'm your host isabel ringnas tune in next week for more insights on technology leadership and sustainability 